0: Coming Back is a 100% listener-supported podcast. To support the show and to get your hands on some really cool podcast swag, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Support the show for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Your support keeps Coming Back ad-free, which is really awesome. Thank you. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, I'm talking to Candace Ossifort Russell, a therapist and author of the popular medium article, Want to Support Your Grieving Friend? Five Truths About What Really Helps, that one of our grief growers posted in the private Facebook group this past month. Candace lost her husband suddenly on Valentine's Day, 1992. Also on the show today, I'm talking about how to recapture your creativity after a loss. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches the transformational power of grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief we are growing. Let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. I am so excited to be with you today. Just a quick heads up for my Patreon supporters pledging $33 per month or more to support the show. I know there's a couple of you out there. Our monthly Google Hangout is coming up. You should have received an email from Patreon last night, but I will also remind you here that March's Ask Me Anything Hangout will be taking place Sunday, March 25th at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. This is your exclusive opportunity to have some one-on-one time with me. You can ask for grief resources or advice. And walking through loss with others. We can chat about houseplants or the Golden Girls or how to start your own podcast if you're going in that vein, just whatever's coming up for you. Listeners, please know that this event is limited to my spirited students category on Patreon. These are people who have pledged $33 per month or more to support this show. That's about, uh, let's see six or seven dollars per episode, which is pretty rad. Uh, If you'd like to join us, you can pledge to support the show as soon as the same day of the event and still receive the link to join the hangout. If you already pledge on Patreon, all you have to do is go to your profile there and bump up your pledge amount to at least $33 per month or more. This is just like just like getting an hour's worth of grief work with me for a really, really reduced rate. I am so excited to see all of you there. It's been so much fun. If you would like more information on this event on the Google Hangout, you can swing on over to my Facebook page where I've got my once a month Ask Me Anything live events scheduled through the end of April. You can also always email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. Okay, so today I want to talk about how to recapture your creativity after a loss. Creativity is a really big deal for me. And one of the first podcast episodes I did, episode five, entitled The Six Grief Myths and Why They Suck, one of my most popular episodes, I told a story about how my voice was one of the most surprising things I lost in the midst of my grief. When my mom died, I stopped singing for over a year, I think. And I didn't really notice it. There was so much else going on that I didn't realize that I'd stopped singing and stopped writing and stopped speaking about things with passion and conviction. My voice was gone. I was wrestling with so much and had to continue to be so much for myself and for others every day after her loss that I didn't even notice my voice, which I had been using beautifully and consistently to sing, write and speak since I was a little kid was gone. I didn't become mute, but that but that, that gusto, that feeling behind it had vanished. When I had this realization, it had been over a year since she died, I remember I was kneeling in front of my makeshift altar at home that had her picture and a candle and a couple of other things on it, and I was crying again about the fact that my mom was dead, and something... In my heart space, not my head space, my head was telling me it was a stupid idea, but my heart was telling me that I needed to sing about my pain. It sounded absolutely ridiculous, but in that moment, I was like, well, you know, what the hell do I have to lose? So I did. I started singing. And the song that came out of me was totally different than anything I had ever created or thought to create before. In that split second moment, I realized I had stopped singing for over a year. And the voice that was coming through now was the one that had been waiting for me in my grief. That was the first step on the road back to rediscovering my voice post loss. I think we're all creative creatures, whether we're knitting or playing an instrument or juggling or speaking or running a business or making jewelry, we all have this innate capacity within us to create and to make things exist in the world that weren't there before. It's a quality that's inherently human. Few other species make things and put them out into the world simply because they want to. We humans cannot help but create. It's in our guts and in our hearts to create. And it makes so much sense that we lose our creativity or our inspiration or our dreams or our abilities when we grieve. So much else is going on in our lives. And also, life isn't that great. Life is garbage while we're grieving. And while some artists thrive in the darkness and the grit and the sadness and that angst, most of the rest of us are all floundering around like, wait a minute, where'd that go? Wh- when, when did that stop? Uh, how can I get that back? So I've got some thoughts on recapturing creativity for you this week, Grief Growers. And here we go. So first, when you recognize that you've lost your creativity Acknowledge it. We talked about acknowledgement a lot on last week's episode 38. So acknowledge it. See, hear, validate, give permission to the fact that yes, your creativity is gone. And then yes, grieve. Grieve for the fact that you haven't worked on your needlepoint project in months. Grieve for the fact that you had to say goodbye to your neighborhood choir after your dad died. Grieve for the fact that you woke up one day and realized the thing that you were working on, the thing that you were creating, when your loss hit, no longer exists. Or at least no longer exists in the same way that it used to. Just like acknowledging that you will not be the same person after you lost that you were before your loss... Your creativity will not be either. And that brings me to my next point. Reframe and release. This is the hardest step. Once you've acknowledged that your creativity as you once knew it is gone, say goodbye to it. A formal goodbye. Some people like to write a letter to their inspiration, thanking them for spending as much time with them as it did. Some people put away their art supplies as a symbol of stopping a project or a practice. For me, this step was actually pretty unconscious, but once I noticed that my voice was coming back in a different way than I was used to using in the past, I felt more comfortable putting away my old songbooks and my old journals, my old ways of using my voice for a while. This step is all about releasing that pressure that we sometimes put on ourselves for our lives to look and be exactly the same as they were pre-loss. And this is the hardest step in the process, especially, I mean, if your grief is a big part of your identity, if it's a big money maker for you or the breadwinning element of your life, or if you've sunk a lot of money or time or talent into it and honing your craft, this part of it can be really, really painful because the formula, as we remember for grief, is time plus intensity. So the longer you've been doing something and the more intensely you've been investing in it, whether it's monetarily or in a heart space, the more you have to reframe and release in this step. But please know that this is absolutely necessary. Think of it as cleaning out your heart space. I'm kind of doing a sweeping motion on this end of the mic. Asking yourself, what is it that no longer works for you? And even more importantly, more specific, what boxes do you no longer fit into creatively? So last step, now that you've acknowledged and released your former creative work, swing open the doors to something new. This might be the return of your former practice in a new lens or at a new depth, like my voice came back to me in a totally different way. This might be a totally new practice that you weren't expecting. Whatever it is, keep your mind open, your heart open, your emotions open to your creativity and your impulses, taking new shapes and coming to you in new forms. One of my favorite authors, Elizabeth Gilbert, frames this beautifully in her book, Big Magic, which is one of my all-time favorite books on creativity. I actually just finished reading it for the second time. But she says creativity is being constantly curious, constantly curious. Did you used to paint cars but are now itching to do jigsaw puzzles? Did you used to draw in charcoal and now you want to garden? Did you used to love to cook but now you want to knit your child a hat? Just follow that. It seems totally random, totally out of the blue, but just follow this as curiosity. This new form of expression that's coming to you. It's not visiting you to make you money or hang on the wall or to impress your friends. So just follow it for it. The visualization that I get here is like a silly blindfolded leading the blindfolded trust exercise at a summer camp. It's kind of like, oh, what the hell? You know, this is this is creativity. Just follow me. Let's see what happens. This is a new and odd energy to bring to the heaviness and the anguish and the numbness of grief, especially if you're grieving still that you've lost your creativity and the picture of what it used to look like before. But see if you can make yourself even a little bit receptive to this energy, this playful curiosity energy. See if you can paint your nails along with a YouTube video or write a song in a totally new instrument to you. It's all play for the purpose of helping you come back. So for me, this looked like embracing this new voice of mine. If you've listened to previous episodes of Coming Back, you'll know that this voice can sometimes look like chanting, or writing like I speak, or making lists of three things. You see how I just stood there, chanting, writing, making lists of three things, three things. Uh, That somehow became a signature for me, a spoken and written trinity. I don't think I did that all that much before my mom died, but now it really, really sticks and has become a part of how I express myself in the world. It's a creative outlet for me. I don't sing classical Broadway as much as I used to. I don't play performance piano anymore. But I do work with flowers. And I do create videos now, both on YouTube and on Facebook Live. These are both things that I never did creatively before my mom died. This podcast also came out of my new voice. And it will be here and exist as a creative outlet and service for as long as it feels good. That's how I want it. And that's how I've learned that my creativity wants it too. Creativity is a tandem process. And my creativity and I are working together in this. She is speaking through me for as long as it feels good for the both of us. It's kind of this beautiful contractual relationship that we have. Just like everything else in coming back, your loss is an invitation to build something else in your life. Of course there is pain and of course there is sadness in releasing a personal creative outlet because in a way it just feels like tearing it all down, throwing it out, discarding it, shattering it. That's really, really heartbreaking. And for a lot of us, it's how some of us literally define ourselves and the work that we do in the world is through our creativity. But holding on to expired creativity does not serve us. It stresses us out by forcing us to be something that we're not anymore to try and fit back into that box that we've outgrown. So deep breath here, grief growers, lean into what's different. See it, acknowledge it, reframe and release it, and dust off those shelves to make space for your new curiosity. If you don't think you're an inherently creative person, but want to start creating after a loss, try on some of these suggestions and see if they work for you. First, jump in anywhere, literally anywhere. Start doodling on post-its that you keep at your desk. Keep a journal, but make it a little bit less pressure than a full account of your life that people think of when they think of journal. So something like picking one word per day or listing three things that you noticed that really stood out to you in that day. Watch a YouTube video on clay throwing or stained glass making. Break out that old set of watercolors or plunk around on the piano or the guitar. Literally just start anywhere. You're not trying to publicize, frame, or sell anything that you create. So just unscrew that pressure valve and just start. Secondly, bring some friends or your kids in on it. Tell a friend or two or ten that you want to try painting and go to one of those uh, sip and draw paint nights at your local studio where everybody brings their own wine or get one of those friendship making bracelet kits off the internet and have a bracelet-making slumber party with your kids at home. You can mooch off your buddy's gym membership to go dancing or swimming or Zumba or rock climbing at the local gym. You can chip in five bucks for a weekend improv workshop. Doing creative things with friends is a great way to get into a creative pursuit to kind of try on different hats. And also, I love this part about it to stay connected in the midst of your loss. Plus, in, in a way, it kind of takes the focus off of observing, of losing and of mourning for a while and into a space of manifesting and creating. It's a different type of energy that can be really, really refreshing if you feel like you're getting stuck or stagnant in your grief or you're itching to create. The last thing I'll suggest is to make creator a part of your identity. Start telling yourself that you're on a mission to find the best feeling, most creative way to express yourself. Along with whatever loss has occurred for you, discard the idea that you're no longer a creative person. Adhere that identity as I am not a creative person to the person, place, thing, pet that you lost and lose that idea too. Bury this idea along with whatever loss has happened for you. And kind of resurrect yourself as this creative person and send yourself on a quest to become the creative person that your loss is inviting you to be. I absolutely adore creativity. It is a huge part of who I am. And I know a huge part of you two grief growers. Every single week I log into the private Facebook group and see the poems and quotes and photos and journals that you're sharing. It's immensely powerful to transmit our grief and loss into something besides plain old conversation. And of course, all of you listening have an open invitation to join the Grief Growers Garden on Facebook at any time. All you have to do is search Grief Growers Garden in the group section of Facebook, make your request to join because this is a closed group, and then answer three screening questions. Then you are all set. One last note, if you'd like to talk more about recapturing your creativity after loss, join me for the final Facebook Live of this season, season two of Coming Back, this coming Monday, March 19th at 1 o'clock p.m. Central. We'll talk about how loss can make us lose our creativity and all of the things we can do to both honor the loss of our creativity and to call our creative instinct back into our lives. Just like my Facebook page, Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide to be notified when the broadcast begins. Next up, we'll talk to Candace Ossifort-Russell, whose husband died from a bizarre and fast-moving virus that attacked his heart. Candace Ossifort-Russell is a psychotherapist, grief advocate, writer, and therapist trainer who brings a unique blend of personal and professional experience to loss, trauma, and emotions of all kinds. Her journey to becoming a psychotherapist began when she was widowed at age 30, while still nursing her 11-month-old son. By going all the way through the darkness of deep loss with the help of a kind and fearless therapist, she learned wisdom, compassion, and a fierce ability to be with the intense emotions, all of which brought her to her calling to help others on their own journeys through loss and trauma. Since then, Candice has pursued studies in psychological, spiritual, and scientific perspectives of suffering and transformation for over 25 years. She is the founder of the Deep Center for Counseling and Psychotherapy Training, which is based in Austin, Texas, where she helps clients make their own way through grief and trauma. She writes about grief and other intense emotions to educate people in our death-averse world, and she trains therapists nationally and internationally to understand how to be truly helpful when clients are going through the darkest of times. Just a heads up that due to a tech glitch on my end, my side of our conversation this interview today is a little bit harsh and fuzzy sounding, but I've done the best I can to smooth it out. So let's get to our interview. Well, Candace, thank you so much for joining us on Coming Back this week. I'm so excited to have you here on the show because one of our grief growers in the private Facebook group shared mm-hmm. your... What I like to think of as a viral medium article entitled, Want to Support Your Grieving Friend, Five Truths About What Really Helps. And the instant I read your writing, I knew I had to have you on the show. So if you could please start us off with your loss story.
1: My lost story is that when I was 30 years old and my son, my first and only child, was 11 months old, my husband, who is a healthy, fit, 39-year-old runner, Uh, became suddenly ill a couple of days after our baby's first Christmas. Um, And on new year's day, I had to take him to the emergency room because he had shallow breathing and I had to drop him off at the emergency room while I ran home to call my mother who lives in a town who's about, that's about an hour from me. My mother came to watch my son while I went back to the hospital and, uh, It took them the whole day to figure out that this healthy fit runner was having uh, heart problems. And a cardiologist came and told me if he didn't make it through the night, he wouldn't be surprised. And yeah. (laughs) And so uh, I went from having a healthy husband to two days later being told he might not make it through the night. And then he did make it through the night. But that then led to a phase of Uh, progressive heart failure, he turned out to have had a virus that attacked his heart and essentially just ate his heart muscle. And so a week after going into the hospital, he was put on a ventricular assist device, which was essentially an external artificial heart. Having done that, that permanently destroyed his actual heart, which meant he had to have a heart transplant. And so we were then waiting in the, while he was in the hospital in ICU for 6 weeks waiting for him to get enough strength to undergo transplant surgery and to get a donor heart. And then the big story was that on Valentine's Day, the day that we had gotten engaged 5 years earlier, I was visiting Marty, my husband at the hospital and one of the nurses ran in and interrupted us during our visit. And I was kind of angry at first, but she burst out that we got a donor heart. So we got a healthy donor heart on Valentine's day. Isn't that, (laughs) it's like the irony of getting a heart on Valentine's day. And uh, so everybody knew this young dad in the hospital waiting for a heart. So while they were preparing him for transplant surgery, all the doctors and nurses and therapists and everything were coming by his hospital room to say, we're so excited for you after what you've been through. This is going to be the easy part. Um, and then he went into surgery and he didn't survive. Um, in the wee hours of the morning of February 15th, he died in surgery. And, uh, so, uh, that was just shocking you know we went from this excite you know this roller coaster of he's not going to make it through the night then he did make it through the night and then they had all kinds of hope that he would be okay and then he didn't survive the surgery and uh so that is uh walking out of that hospital was when i uh walked into a world that was forever different
0: <laughs> i feel like just like this analogy of the roller coaster, I feel like the literal wind has been taken out of me. It's an it, I talk about grief so much as this instant plunge into darkness and you can't, it's irreversible. Yes, And it is. What was going through your mind, if anything, walking out of this hospital, walking to this 11-month-old baby who, I, I mean, I'm like, you've got dependents, you've got family, he's got family. All this
1: came crashing down on you, I'm sure. I just remember when I I remember the feeling when the surgeon came in and said he didn't make it. Um I just remember that I was kind of like a shocking numbness. It was like terror and a shocking numbness all at once. Walking out of that hospital, I still remember it was it was winter and I live in Texas so it's not intense winter in fact. I remember there were these bright yellow and purple pansies planted outside the door. And it was a bright, sunny day. And I just remember not understanding how the sun could be shining. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't understand. I didn't understand how there could be sun and how cars could be driving and uh, down the street. And the fact that the whole world hadn't come to a complete stop was mystifying to me. <laughs> It was very disorienting to walk, to know my world had ended and walk out into a sunny, beautiful day where everybody else seemed normal.
0: (laughs) You just want to walk around and grab them by the collar and be like, don't you know, don't you know?
1: Right, right. Oh my God. Had you and your husband talked about the possibility of this happening? Not specifically. um, Actually, I mean, I had quit a graduate program when I had my son to stay home with him. And my husband, Marty, his father had died when he was 18 years old. So I guess it was when I was pregnant, we decided that if I was going to stay home with the kid, that he should get more life insurance. And so in that respect, we had talked in the abstract of if something ever happened to him, which is weird because what 30 year old person thinks ahead to buy life insurance in case something happens. (laughs) But, uh, so we did foresight. (laughs) I know. Um, but as far as in the hospital, I think that's one of the things that I learned from having lost Marty is that I, that's one of the things that, you know, there's always those little things that you look back on and feel guilty about no matter how much anybody tries to reassure you, you shouldn't feel guilty. And one of those things is that, I was holding it together to still take care of a nursing infant and then go visit Marty in the hospital and all that. I could not allow myself to comprehend or know that he might die once he survived that first night. I was certain he was going to live. And I think there might have been times that he was scared and worried he might die. And I just didn't open Myself to talking to him about it because I mean he didn't indicate it. It was I'm assuming maybe he did, but I I myself did not allow myself to know in those weeks in the hospital that he wasn't going to leave the hospital. And uh, but since then, <laughs> I had another friend die of cancer a couple of years later, and I walked right up to the edge with her and we talked about everything because I learned the hard way that you don't ever want to have those kinds of regrets.
0: Oh, I love that. Thank you. I'm curious yeah. what you did then for his remembrance, his service, his
1: family, Were there special songs played. How did you honor him and his life? Part of what happened when he died was I felt like my, my old self died too. And, uh, my old self had been a very compliant Uh, sort of people pleasing kind of person. And I felt like Marty was the only person who really knew me as the real authentic person that I was. And um, when he died, that whole compliant facade just shattered. (laughs) And I didn't care about pleasing anybody else anymore. However, it took a few weeks for that to kick in. So immediately after he died, he, he was cremated. And we had a memorial service, And that memorial service, I did my best to honor him the way I could. But he wasn't that religious of a person. And his mother was very religious. And my parents were too. And so he was his mother's only child also. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the original memorial service was more for her than for Marty. I tried my best to honor him within it. But this woman who had lost her husband and her only child... I felt like needed to have the kind of service she needed to honor him. <laughs> and then uh, I actually, my son was just a baby. And so he wasn't going to remember any of it. So I actually saved Marty's ashes for four years, three years, for three years. And when my son was four years old, I wrote a memorial service for Marty that included music and poetry and uh memories and stuff that I that fit him that fit me and I got him a burial plot and I hosted a memorial service three years after his death that was really the right one that was for him and that my son who was then four could participate in and uh, I I wrote that whole service from beginning to end and it was very meaningful so. So we did two things.
0: (laughs) This is something I've never heard of before, but it seems like there's a lot of permission in this to continue to hold on to things, to not have Uh to move through so quickly, to, you know, get rid of the ashes so quickly, to only have, you know, the one and done memorial service. Um, I'm wondering if you can, can speak more to this idea of having permission to hold on until we're ready to let go, or maybe even this idea of letting go in pieces.
1: Yes. Um, that's definitely something that, uh, that I'm very grateful to my family. And I also, I went to therapy right after my husband died. I had been in career transition and talked to a therapist just about that stuff before he ever got sick. And, uh, so I had this person who turned out to be an an amazing life-saving resource who between my family and this therapist were just going with me through the process. So I had a lot of permission to listen to my intuitive process and, and, and there was nothing in me that felt like any of this advice about closure or getting over things or stupid phases of grief made any sense, you know? So, um, I really just trusted myself and the phases that I went through and, and now I am a therapist, and I study this stuff, and I help people, and I really see we there is no magic time frame for this stuff, and grief takes its time. And I don't mean time heals all wounds, because it doesn't, and it's not just a matter of the passing of time, but it does take time to do your healing. I know I I felt pretty much in shock for about a year. I had certainly moments of feeling a lot of feelings, but I was pretty numb and uh, out of it for about a year. I mean, I was functional. I don't mean I wasn't functioning, but my emotional state was very uh, very shock-like for about a year. And then the second year, I started feeling so much and the people around me wanted me to take antidepressants because I was feeling so much. And I was like, I'm finally alive again. Don't you dare shut me down. And uh, (laughs) That's right. And then I was angry for about a year. I was enraged with the universe for about a year. You know, it's just things take as long as they take. I was grateful. I didn't have to leave the house we lived in together. I, I took my time going through his belongings. And then a couple of years after he died, I suddenly had to get out of the house. So I sold the house and moved and, I just did everything on my own timetable with lots of support. And uh, I can't tell you how much it means to me that I had that support to take my time because I really kind of re-knit my very being from the ground up in that process.
0: Oh, I just got chills. What a great phrase. I re-knit my
1: being from the ground up. Oh, I love that. Because the other thing that I write about a lot, too, is that when we have a major loss like that, especially, I mean, especially a traumatic loss, like when you lost your mother at such a young age, and me losing my husband in the middle of a life where it was out of the order of things, it you not only lose the person, which is a huge piece of the grief, but part of what happens is it 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 uh, shatters the way your identity and yourself is organized. There's a whole bunch of science behind this, and that that like it, the coming apart of how I thought the world was supposed to work, the coming apart of who I thought I was in the world. You know, all those things. That's that is another aspect to the loss that takes time to heal and. We don't talk about that very much. It's, it's about kind of like, well, you get used to the fact that this person is gone and you move on. And it's like, no, it's aspects of your whole identity that have come apart and have to be put back together. Yes,
0: absolutely. And I'm leaning mm-hmm. into right now the story that was at the top of this article, Want to Support Your Grieving Friend. Can you like retell the Sadie story for people who may not know this? Sure.
1: So this was just a few months after my husband died. Um, I I was talking to a friend who I'd been, uh, Marty and I had been couple friends with Sadie and her husband and uh, before Marty was sick. And in fact, they gave us a baby shower when I was pregnant and everything. And after Marty died, I was talking to her and she said, you know, I always heard about how sometimes when people are widowed, their friends kind of leave them behind and don't want to be around him anymore. And I always thought that was terrible. But you know what? Now I understand. And I was just like sort of taken aback and wondering what in the world. She, I was like, what? And she said, yeah, it's like it's uncomfortable for me to be around you because it makes it, me realize something like that could happen to me. And I don't want to think about it. Maybe we should talk about something else. And I. I, I just was reeling. I I just had no idea what how to respond to that. I was just like, you think it's uncomfortable for you? You try waking up in my bed every morning. <laughs> so uh, I, uh, I wasn't really friends with Sadie after that.
0: <laughs> yes, I think this happens so much in grief. I literally lost friends after my loss because they're like, I don't know how to be with you when you are this sad. Or like... It, it was overwhelming to them, and it was like this is too much for right. me. And I was like, "It's overwhelming for you." Like, you know,
1: I'm saying, right. I'm like
0: just like I just I want to tear know. my hair out. Be like, "Are you crazy?" And like, <laughs> scream at them. And, and I know. And it just yes. the <laughs> mind, and you're just like this. I, I, the the lack of comprehension there is so strong. But I really want to speak to this because it's so true for so many people who are. Friends of grievers is not knowing how to yes. sit in the sadness or make space for it or whatever other phrase mm-hmm. you'd like to use for. It. And and the rest of this article, the want to support your grieving friend article is the reasons why we struggle to do this, and then the best part about it for me was actionable tips for how to do this. Because even grievers can tell you what not to do. And we spoke before we started recording today about the concept of grief shaming, where society shames grievers for grieving. But then grievers also turn right back around and shame family and friends for not uh, treating them, being with them the ways that they need. And we're like, well, I, I was just trying to help because you right. you even said in this article, I was like, I knew my friend Sadie was just being honest with me, but my God, you know, right? That was terrible. And, yeah, right. and so I really wanted to get into, I'm going to make this a two-parter for us. Um, how you channeled this loss in your life to become a psychotherapist and educate yourself in a way that helps others. And then how this is formed into the science of, being better people
1: surrounding grief and loss. Okay. So I was in career transition when I had my son. I, uh, my undergraduate degree is in computer science, and I realized four years into it that I really hated it. And <laughs> so I, I uh, had gone into a psychology, a, a research psychology PhD program before I had my son and it was so all consuming that when i when we decided to have a child i decided to put that phd program on hold and then my husband died and everything changed and i had because I, like i mentioned my husband had bought life insurance i had a period of a few years that i could luckily take the time to just grieve and parent my child and sort through what in the world i was going to do with myself it, but i I didn't have enough money to live without working forever, just for a few years. And so I just grieved and I wrote, I, that was when I really started writing for the first time. I wrote about my grief. I wrote about my response to the culture about grief um, and being in therapy with this therapist who just went into the darkness with me and walked all the way through with me, just changed my life in a way that I I don't know what I would have done without her. So about five years after my husband died, I realized I needed to become a therapist. I was no longer interested in research psychology. I wanted to be in the nitty gritty of sitting with people in their dark places. And so I did go to graduate school at that point and became a therapist myself. And now I've been a therapist for about 20 years and Uh, I wrote my master's thesis about grief. And it was really, it's just been a very, having gone through this loss and then coming through to helping people with grief has sort of led me to, it led me to this place where I can't tell the difference between work and art and passion and love, because to read about the theories behind all this emotion and everything really helped me like kind of, I guess I think, I knew that my process was something to be honored. I knew that it had changed me in a way that made me a better person, and a more capable person of sitting with people in hard times. But I wanted to have like, the words that to validate that to the universe to the world. So rather than just just my experience matters. I wanted to be able to articulate this to the world to have an impact on the way we see grief. And so my master's thesis was more from a sense of depth psychology, like Jungian perspectives and spiritual perspectives on this grief process. And then for the last 20 years, that has tied into an amazing burgeoning of emotion science and neuroscience that explains a lot of emotion theory. And so I have really been looking at emotion theory through the lens of grief to really see how the way our brains are wired and the ways our, our need for attachment in the world explains why grief hurts so much and why it lasts so long And why people have such a hard time knowing what to say when they face someone who's in that kind of pain. So it's become this lifelong integrated journey for me to study all this stuff and then articulate it in words in order to both comfort grievers because it makes people who are grieving suddenly not feel crazy to know that this makes biological sense what they're feeling And it also helps people who want to help grievers understand what they're seeing in front of them and also understand why they're having such a painful reaction to their loved one's pain. And my other piece is that I train therapists because I just got lucky and I found a good therapist who was willing to go with me. But there's a lot of misinformation in the psychology world about grief too. And so many therapists just kind of face grieving people and try to force them into the five stages of grief. And the therapists themselves don't know how to help. Yes. It's insane. There are a lot of, (laughs) yes, yes. There are so many therapists. I mean, graduate schools teach, that's all they teach about grief. And so I have this, I have this passion of training therapists to be able to sit with people in the darkness and, go down and through it rather than trying to rescue them from it
0: uh what a great that's another lovely phrase go down and through instead of trying to rescue Yeah, that speaks to me so strongly because it is this are you going to diagnose me are you are you going to go on the journey with me I'm kind of laughing at a lot of the science with grief because I'm sure you have like some favorite subjects or favorite topics or favorite facts that you like geek out on uh, that you've learned so far. What are your favorite or like most surprising insights that you've gleaned from this emotional
1: science research and grief? Let's see. For grievers, I mean, one of the things is the polyvagal theory of the nervous system which talks about how we are creatures, essentially, right? We sense in the world with our bodies whether the the world is safe or threatening, and when our and when our gut perceives threat, it sets off our nervous system either to go into hyper arousal, like you know, uh, like uh, heart beating fast and and uh, shortness of breath and anxiety kind of symptoms, or if the threat is intense enough, it causes us to go into a collapse state, which is a state of kind of paralysis and numbness and even dissociation. And what Thing I find, dead, for lack of a better phrase. Is, exactly, that's exactly what it is. And so essentially, what I've sort of pulled apart is how when you lose a loved one, it causes your whole nervous system to perceive threat all around you because it up, it upends so many things like, like the person that you are turning used to turning towards, you turn towards them and they're not there. And that lack is is perceived as dangerous and all the roles that you depended on them for are gone. All these things. It's like, so if you think about the, the quote symptoms of grief that people feel, after the a loss that make them feel crazy, where they they don't feel like eating, they can't sleep, their heart pounds, they feel dizzy, they feel numb. All those all those uh, physiological symptoms that you feel feel after you lose a loved one. All of that makes sense because it's it's just your nervous system responding to threat, and so. For people to realize that these symptoms that can be so intense that they've never felt before and they can last so long that it comes from that perception of threat in the environment that is caused by this person having gone missing, <laughs> that, um, that it just makes sense that that's what your body's feeling. So the other piece of this nervous system thing is that we also can feel threatened by the threat. So if we get scared of our feelings, it makes the feelings become detrimental to us and they can turn into depression and illness. But if we feel safe with the feelings we're having, they're just feelings and they will move us towards healing and take us in the direction of exactly what we need in order to heal from this huge wound that is loss. So our culture that shames grievers actually sets grievers up to feel bad about their feelings and be afraid of their feelings, which is the very thing that can cause the feelings to become illness inducing and uh, depression versus if we could encourage people to know that the intense emotions they're having are normal responses of their nervous system to this situation that they're in, then their feelings will just flow through them and lead them towards the very actions they need to take in order to heal. It's just this layered layer. I can't be with you because you're sad. Oh, I should be afraid of my sadness. No
0: one wants to be around right. me. Oh, it'll pass in time. You shouldn't be this angry. Oh, I should be afraid of my anger. And so it's this, the threat becomes a threat. And so it's like this meta threat level th- it's, exactly there's so many layers to this and it's just i yes. love this that there's science behind it because not only is there validation of somebody sitting across from you saying this is normal actually that happened to me too and isn't it ridiculous how we respond to each other sometimes but it's there's scientific proof of this is how our bodies are made to react to grief and if we're afraid of ourselves it only becomes stronger
1: Even their own emotional states can scare them because they're bigger than any they've ever had before, you know? so Yes, to feel things at this depth is mind-blowing. Yes. Yeah, and overwhelming and very
0: scary. Um, Can we kind of uh, flip the tables for a moment and talk about some interesting science facts for those either watching grievers, helping grievers, related to grievers, but maybe not on the first lines of a loss?
1: Sure, sure. So the science that I've really seen that, that really makes sense to me is about the attachment system. We humans have social brains, meaning we are wired to attach to each other from the time we're born. We're wired to need to have the people we love close to us as as much as possible. And so part of the attachment system is the caregiving system. This is a biological reflex that we all have wired into our brains. So what that caregiving reflex is, is when we see someone we care about who's in pain, our biological reflex is to protect them from pain. It is a reflex. It's kind of like we can't help it. You see somebody you love who's hurting and you want to help. You want to make the suffering stop. Anyone who's a parent knows that with a little kid, right? They're in pain. You want to make the pain stop. But then you run into something like death. And so you're you're looking at your loved one who's grieving and your biological reflex is causing you to want to protect them from this pain, but you can't. Because the only thing that would make that pain stop is to raise somebody from the dead, which you can't do. So what's happening inside the person who wants to help is this conflict between two two parts of them is that it's this sense of a biological reflex pushing them to fix it. And the utter realization that it cannot be fixed, which generates a feeling of helplessness which is deeply unconscious. I'm not saying people are walking around thinking, I'm so helpless, but that's how it works. So what that, to me, is what people are responding to when they say the stupid things they say because they don't know what to do. They're having this internal sense that they want to help. They feel helpless, so they just say things to try to fix it. Their impulse is to fix it, to say, why don't you get out more, you, you're, you're not getting out enough, or, you know, you need to do your grief work, going through your grief steps will help you get over this faster. You know, he's in a better place. Uh, time heals all wounds. It's
0: helpful for, for grievers to know the science of people watching grievers too, because our impulse is to, to just look at them and be like, well, you weren't doing it right. And then they're like, well, I'm just trying to help. And, and it turns into both parties being more walled off to each other as opposed to more sympathetic. Because I was so angry at everybody else in my life for not right. understanding. I'm like, why can't you understand this is so yeah and just me too yes and why can't you understand that this is so painful and all consuming and and they're like well my peer group was mostly like why don't you just drink because we're all 21 like what 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 else do you (laughs) You know come to the exactly you know focus on your thesis go back to school right all this other all this other stuff or one day this will seem small and i'm like well that's not today and so i would i would discount people majorly but i didn't understand what they were going through on their end was this literal internal unidentifiable anguish of watching me struggle, but not being able to, to fix to do anything about it. Right. And and yeah, that just having to sit and watch is hyper painful.
1: It requires a lot of kind of effort on the part of the person who wants to help to notice that's what they're feeling and then stop and simply say, I don't know how to help. I want to help. I care about you. I don't know how to help. To me, that's so much more helpful than jumping in to try to do something that's not helpful. And so for people to be aware that that's what's happening and that it's okay to respond with, you know, this death has humbled all of us. And we are all in pain and we don't know what to do. Let's be in that together. You know, that brings us together in humanity. So I also found and, I, you know, for grievers out there, I did find that there were definitely people who did rise to the occasion who were there for me. And going through a major trauma like that does kind of separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak, mm-hmm. I lost friendships with people who couldn't show up who I thought would have been my friends forever. And I, I, Gained new friendships and also deepened friendships with people I didn't realize had the depth to really show up, and so it rearranges a lot of stuff. It's another layer of loss that you go through, but over time you end up knowing that the friends you have in your life are the hardcore people that you want to go through life with.
0: <laughs> yeah, I heard you say hardcore, but I heard heartcore, mm. and I kind of like
1: that. Oh, for you I well. like that. Yeah, I do too. One. Yeah. Life yeah. I'm going to take like, that.
0: Oh, yeah, please do. I love mm-hmm. it. I love coming up with you. Uh, <laughs> praises for grief. Yeah. Um, I, I'm yeah. looking at some notes that I was taking in your story, and I want to touch on really quickly before we sign off for the day on the concept of memorializing anniversaries, death anniversaries. It sounds like Valentine's Day was a was and still is a hyper important day to you for you and your husband because that was the day that you were engaged but then all of a sudden it became a nightmare of a day and so i'm I'm curious as to what you did the first year out the second year out if things have changed over time if you ignore it if you do something on purpose because of it Ah. if you hate valentine's day now i'm just so curious about how not only an anniversary
1: but how a holiday has has changed for you Yes. Well, that's interesting. You asked that. You, you might want to go on Medium and see the article I posted on Valentine's oh. Day this year. It's called, it's called uh, 12 Things I Learned About Love When My Husband Died on Valentine's Day. Oh, definitely look <laughs> and uh, I'm very much for doing things on anniversaries. It really, to me, ritual really helps to hold and honor the emotions that we have. And on the first Valentine's Day after Marty died, I bought, he used to buy me a dozen, roses, a dozen roses on Valentine's Day. It was kind of cliche, but it was very special for us. So I went and bought a dozen roses for myself on Valentine's Day. And I, I had a babysitter for the day. And I went and visited 12 places that were our favorite places to go. And I left a rose at each one of those places.
0: Oh, I love that.
1: And the second Valentine's Day, I was in that place of anger. I took his ashes and I went out to the graveyard. I didn't have a, he wasn't buried yet, but I went out and I, uh, I put roses on a grave in the graveyard <laughs> next to his ashes. And I stomped them into the grass. I just stomped those roses into the grass. I was so mad. I was so mad at the universe. I, so I just like, I, I mean, I I dug those roses into a red paste into the grass and, uh, I've tried to do something, on Valentine's day every year. But then I did remarry 11 years after my husband died. I found the right man. And when I remarried, I decided that I would reclaim Valentine's day for him. And since Marty actually died on the wee hours of February 15th, I kind of own that as Marty's death anniversary so that I could have Valentine's day with my live husband. And, uh, the 15th for my dead one. I always try to do something.
0: I think that's really important and important too, that we give ourselves permission to change the script as time goes on. Cause the rituals don't always feel appropriate every single year. Yes. Sometimes you're in a rage space. Sometimes right. you're in a gratitude space. Sometimes you're in a kind of a mellow, like a heart space. Yes, absolutely. I'm hearing you on that. Thank you so much for sharing your new and old rituals
1: with us. Yes. Thanks for asking.
0: So Candace, before we sign off uh, today, I want to let people know where they can find you, what you're working on now, just how best to get in touch and read more about your story, because the way you write
1: the science behind this has been totally fascinating to me. Well, thank you so much. Yes, I have a free downloadable ebook about grief that basically uh, kind of busts five myths, our culture perpetuates about grief. If you go to my website, which is candicecounseling.com, C-A-N-D-Y-C-E, counseling.com, there's a, a bar at the top of the website where you can download that grief ebook. I'm also working, I'm hard at work on a book that puts all this science of grief into words for people. And I'm very excited about it. And it's, it's a, it's a lot of work and it, I want it to be out there now, but it takes time. So I am also, um, publishing articles on medium.com. My medium.com address is at C O R therapist, Candace Ossifort Russell's therapist. And I have, uh, a bunch of articles out there that are about grief and emotion. I'm about to publish one about loneliness that's going to come out this coming week. So the grief ebook on my website and the medium.com articles will give you lots of good information.
0: That's perfect. Candice, thank you so much for coming on, coming back today and sharing not only your loss story with us, but this new information and new vocabulary for information. Maybe we already knew on coping with grief and loss for
1: ourselves and when we're walking with others on this path. Well, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here. So that's all for
0: this episode of Coming Back. Thank you 1,000 times over to Candace Ossip-Russell, who said yes so fast to coming on the show after I read her powerful article that another grief grower posted online in the group. Candace came back by leaning on and falling into a wise and compassionate therapist and by studying the biology of grief and grieving. You can find a link to Candace's work where you can find her free ebook called Your Grief Is Your Own in the show notes. Join me for the last Facebook Live of season two of Coming Back Monday, March 19th at one o'clock central time, where we'll talk about recapturing your creativity after a loss. Thank you to all of you out there who are continuing to support the show on Patreon and donating to support the show through my website, ShelbyForSythia.com. If this show has changed how you see grief, head on over to ShelbyForSythia.com donate to check out the myriad of ways you can support this podcast. If you liked what you heard this week, you can also support the show by telling a friend about coming back because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Mr. Eddie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at griefguideshelbyforsythia, or simply com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelby com, subject line podcast. As Always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you. I see you, I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world, and I love you, because even through grief, we are growing.